my body was giving me all the signs. And for someone who thought I was pretty connected, um, I was not paying attention. In fact, it was my friend Katie. I remember I had gone through a period of having like chronic sinus infections and multiple cases of pink eye. And I was, it was a super stressful time in my life. Um, and I remember her saying, Are, you don't get sick like this. Like, is something going on? And um, even then, I don't think I really even heard it. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. No matter what you do or where you are in your life right now, I'm pretty sure you've heard the word no more than once. And some of those no's might make you feel like you don't want to get out of bed. This podcast is here to tell you, you're not alone. If all these people can walk through the valley of no's to get to their yes, why can't you? All right. Welcome back, everybody. For those of you that are new, come on in, grab a seat, open your ears, open your mind, open your eyes, whatever. Um, thank you if you have already subscribed on iTunes or Spotify. We appreciate it. That's the best way to get these episodes downloaded every Friday when they are released. Uh, today, I'm really excited. We have Paige Davis. She is the author of Here We Grow. Um it's a memoir that she recently released about her journey through breast cancer diagnosis. It's uh, mindfulness through cancer and beyond. And she's an entrepreneur who has kicked ass with her green company, Blue Avocado. And she also talks to me about universal winks, those times when we're given signs from the universe that we can choose to act upon or ignore. And it's this dichotomy that sets Paige apart and allows her to teach meditation in a corporate setting to people who sometimes view what she does with skepticism. Uh, she's a triple threat, so easy to talk to. I think you're all going to love her and learn from her, Paige Davis. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be sitting here. And um, Here We Grow is your book. Yep. And uh, how that came about, if you can kind of, you know, just start us off there in your own sure. words of your journey. Yeah, so I've always had a dream of writing a book. This is not the book I dreamed of writing, in fact. So I've always been one of those people that has kept a journal. I studied journalism in, in college. So writing's always been a healing outlet for me. Um, but, you know, I actually resisted because it's about my cancer journey. And so for a while, I kept a blog throughout my cancer journey and um, really is a healing outlet for me. And it was a way to connect with myself and with others. And so when I kind of came through my surgeries, I had a bilateral mastectomy. I had six months of chemotherapy, several reconstruction surgeries, a drug that I have to take for a total of 10 years. Um, so the book was always, you know, hearing it from people like you should write a book. And the first draft really was just my blog post and then my reflections and started to just share that with some editor and publisher friends. And they said, we really love your voice, but want to encourage you to turn it into more of a narrative style. And so I kind of resisted it because I just had this fear of being kind of pigeonholed into the cancer narrative for the rest of my life. Um, but obviously I got over it because this has never been just about cancer for me. It's been about growth and transformation and just awakening to the possibility of our lives. Yeah, I uh, it's beautiful. And, and I related to that when I was just, you know, kind of looking at some of the press materials for your book and a lot of um, the comments in the front of the book talking, you know, from other authors saying this is, yes, it's about cancer, but it's not just for people who have been diagnosed. It's great for them, but it also applies uh, to everybody else, which is how I feel with with this podcast, which is, you know, my my particular journey happens to be being rejected as an actor. Right. But the point of it and the reason I don't just interview people in my field is because I feel like it's more universal. Everybody's dealing with rejection right. and, and this is your form of overcoming something way, way bigger than what I'm talking about, uh, which is really inspiring. I guess my question is, the, the, were you blogging publicly prior to 
the diagnosis? Because the diagnosis was what, when you were like 38? 38. Okay. So um, it's been five years. And, you know, I always kept a blog. It was <laughs> my first blog was called The Sunshine Chronicles. And it was me kind of chronicling all things wellness and sustainability and at times woo woo, but literally maybe had five people following me. Yeah. So it had been years since I had even blogged, but it was literally one of the first things I was like, I need to write about this. And it's because I had several family members that have gone through their own cancer journeys. Two of my aunts, who I was very close with, who had lost their lives. So I was very familiar of what it felt like to be on the other side and just, you know, wanting to know what's going on and feeling that connection. And so it was important for me to um, share the experience. And that was one of the big lessons for me. I mean, it really does take a village. And for someone who was convinced they could do everything on their own, um, that would, this has been kind of the most humbling lesson. So yeah, I just, but again, it, I was always just writing it for myself. And, you know, writing's always been a spiritual process for me. So to the point where I would be writing and I'd read it and I'd be like, where... Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, and um, but it was very healing and cathartic. And I'm just so grateful I had that as a tool. Yeah. And and you um, I have the same deal with the journal writing. I don't think mine has been probably as consistent as yours. But over the years, that's been something that it's just it's just for me. And I've kind of never put it out there. And then the few times that I have, um, like on Facebook, I'll put something out. And for me, it's so uh it's so tough to put my own voice out there. And people think that's crazy because I'm an actor. I've played all kinds of roles. Right. And they're like, well, you can expose yourself. I mean, yeah, but it's different yeah. when it's your own. And what I found, I had this something happen last year, uh, which was just like a kind of a gratitude thing after a trip with my family. I wrote this post and I was like, wow, it's amazing to see the response when yeah. you actually just open up and and um, are vulnerable and mm -hmm. put it out there, which I do in my own journal, but I don't necessarily do it publicly. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, did you find that the audience, like, did you think, did the audience come to you because the subject matter got really personal and all of a sudden people were like, hey, you gotta, you gotta read this and it grew that way? Or were you kind of like, I'm going to strategically grow this audience. How did that? Yes, it was not strategic in any way. It was definitely, again, I was just writing for me. I think what was unique, and again, it started with really my friends and family, and I think them sharing it with people. So I obviously, I teach meditation now, and that just played a huge role in my journey. So just kind of to backtrack about nine months before my diagnosis, I was just your stereotypical stressed out entrepreneur on the verge of burnout, desperate for some peace and just needed something. So I did what I think all of us do in those moments. I started Googling spas, retreats, just anything. Really? She had no contact with the meditation world at that I point? I had always explored it. Um, and I used to own a Pilates studio. So I've always had an interest in wellness and mindfulness, but never consistent practice. I like to describe myself as um, a crisis meditator. So one of my teachers, David G., who I love, talks about that a lot. But um, so, yeah, so I, I landed on a meditation retreat at the Chopra Center with Deepak Chopra and David G was one of my teachers there. And it was a game changer and really was able to cultivate a practice that fit my lifestyle and really helped to dispel a lot of the myths that I had so that it's OK to have thoughts. And really, at yeah. the end of the day, meditation is about soothing our nervous system. And for me, that just completely resonated and came back from that and was able to cultivate a daily practice and saw some pretty immediate benefits. I was sleeping better. I just felt calmer. I was more responsive um, in my communications. I felt more connected to myself and others, both personally and professionally. And things were looking good. And then nine months into that is when I received my cancer diagnosis. And it was literally that moment I was on the table. I had just kind of heard the word. I broke down in tears. And then in that moment, I did the only thing I knew to do. And I just focused on my breath just in and out. And I was just overcome with the sense of peacefulness throughout my entire being. And 
I was aware I was having a potentially devastating moment happening in my life, but there was no denying that peacefulness. And I was had the thought, oh, this is why people meditate. And that really helped to kind of just chart my journey. So back to kind of the the blogging and what I think that's what people were connecting with is because I was so present in my writing and so honest. Um, And it it was different. Like my voice took on different ways. Like I did, um, I wrote kind of letters to myself. So I wrote right before my mastectomy, I wrote a dear boobs letter, just kind of, you know, not in a naive way, but just really honoring what was coming up for me. Like it was, that was a sacred thing that happened. And um, when things were really hard going through chemo, I wrote a letter to my body where I just allowed myself to get really angry and, you know, said the word fuck a lot, which I normally don't. And that was probably my top pose. Like people were like, Ooh, Paige is really getting in there. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. By the way, disclaimer to any males out there, please do not write a dear boobs letter. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That is a good point of distinction. Um, That's, that's amazing. My my sister recently within the month had a double mastectomy. She's going through it and she has been in, um, for the last couple of years, tapping and getting oh, yeah. certified to be a tapper. Oh, cool. And I'm amazed by her mindset mm-hmm. as she's going through this. Yeah. She's been really strong and just just kind of blows me away. Yeah. And and so to hear you say that, I my mind goes to uh, that it's, it's so interesting. You started that journey nine months prior to the mm-hmm. diagnosis. And it all, you know, there's there's a part of me that that I think I've taken, you know, maybe one too many acting classes. And, and but I kind of go like, did the body know there was something and something triggered you to prepare yourself? hundred percent. And my body was giving me all the signs. And for someone who thought I was pretty connected, um, I was not paying attention. In fact, it was my friend Katie. I remember I had gone through a period of having like chronic sinus infections and multiple cases of pink eye. And I was, it was a super stressful time in my life. Um, and I remember her saying, you don't get sick like this. Like, is something going on? And um, even then, I don't think I really even heard it. So you yeah. were just hard charging with your business. Was that blue avocado yeah, or was yeah. that a different bit? Okay. Blue avocado. Um, Why don't you tell, I don't want to take us off course, yeah. but I also want to hear, uh, because I was impressed with that and wondering, did that come after the diagnosis or prior to? Sounds like prior to. Prior to, So yeah. tell us a little bit about blue avocado. Yeah. So I started the company with um, my sister and a good friend and We really started the company with the idea that um, to make it easy for people to live a more reusable lifestyle. So creating um, products that were more sustainable and good for the environment, but also really functional and look good. So our first product was called the Grow Pack, and it was a five bag system, reusable bags made from um, recycled bottles. So there was a carry-all bag, an insulated bag, um, a produce bag a stuff and go bag. And it was designed to replace a 15 plastic bag shopping experience. And it was awesome. And like people loved it. But this was at the time the recession hit. And so, you know, we had to continue tweaking because our model was designed to be kind of the green darling in mass market. But we quickly learned that mass market wasn't ready for green. So, Um, Yeah, so it it was a really exciting time, Um, super fast growth, national distribution in the container store, Whole Foods. um, We're now in Office Max, Office Depot. So really exciting. We've now kind of the brand is taking a single focus to our product. It's called the ReZip, which is designed to replace I, reusable. By the way, I, yeah. I, was, I was tooling around on your website. Oh, and I was cool. like, this is really cool. I actually brought you some. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, I could use it. I yeah. have to admit, I am, I am in need of your services because <laughs> I have plastic water bottles in the, the fridge out yeah. there. And as you're coming, I'm like, I can't give her a plastic <laughs> water bottle. I got I to gotta offer a glass. Yeah. I'm like, damn it. That's so funny. <laughs> so, yeah. so this is something that I am uh, I am naive with and was really 
pleased to see what you're doing because you you actually you have really accomplished that. I looked and I was like, oh, these what are they called? Refreeze, rezip, rezip. Yeah. But yeah, you can so put them in the freezer. Like, yeah. They're they're light. They're designed to replace your disposable plastic baggies. They look so, like good. Yeah, Ziploc. good quality. Yeah. They look good. They're cool. You can. Our favorite test is to put water in them, colored water, like put Gatorade in there and you can test out the double uh, leak proof closure. So, wow, yeah. So, but anyways, I'm out of the day to day now, but at the time, um, yeah, I mean, we were just at a heightened point. We had a celebrity partnership that I was spearheading, um, which Continue. So I went part time once I was diagnosed, and obviously I had to take time off for the surgery, but was continuing working through chemo and actually um, had to come out to LA for the launch of one of our product lines. And it was this. Um, it was an influencer event at Bouchon and, you know, all these like beautiful kind of beauty, eco-friendly bloggers. And this was in the midst of chemo. So I was wearing my scarf. I, you know, friends encouraged me to get my makeup done. I had to paint on my eyebrows. And that, again, was one of those moments where in the midst of what could have been such a devastating and dark time, like that's where I just felt this connection to myself and really saw a light inside. And I look at pictures at that time and there's just, there's no denying kind of a, um, just seeing kind of myself in what felt like the first time, you know, and um, really seeing the beauty, despite being stripped down of so much, like really seeing the beauty in myself um, from the inside out. And that's, that's very powerful. That is so awesome. I want people to hear that because, um, it's just such a recurring theme nowadays. Everything is sound bites and Instagram and you, you know Twitter and all of this. It's all quick in and out and how you present yourself. To hear you say that, you know, a lot of people can kind of say that, but to hear you actually live that and for people to hear that and go, wow, I, I actually felt like I loved myself more or for the first time and on the outside people would say, you know, classically in quotes, like this was the, not a good time for me. Yeah. You know, um, really, really important lesson about mindset and, mm -hmm. and how we talk to ourselves. And, um, I'm just thinking of like the, the things that I tell my kids all the time. I feel like just last night we were driving home and my daughter in the car said, I love myself or something like she no. and, my, and, my, and my son were in a fight and she said something and my wife was like, good. Yeah, yeah, you should do that. And it's like, it's such a huge thing that we, you know, you grow up thinking like, well, I can't say I love myself or say that I'm, you know, good. that's cocky. That's, yeah. but it's like, you gotta feel that way. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things like in this world of whatever, self-help or personal growth that like, just love yourself, just love yourself. But it's, it's not like when it's more about a connection for me, that love is that deepest connection to like the highest divine part of myself. So I guess that's my soul. And it doesn't mean it's all rainbows and unicorns, but it just provides a stability and a steadiness within myself that I know everything's going to be okay. And it's when you were talking about your sister, like her mindset, that's something I heard too. Like you're being so strong, you're being so positive. And I was always confused by that because I was very aware of the hardship and what was going on. And I realized it wasn't about being positive. It was about being present. And it's this present moment awareness that lies at the core of any meditation or mindfulness practice. And, you know, despite what kind of day I was having, and to this day, it continues, my meditation practice is my home base. It is a non-negotiable. And I know some people are like, I'm not that, you know, you want, you have to be flexible, but it's, I meditate twice a day, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. And, um, but that morning one is there's, there's no other way to start my day other than that. And even I remember waking up after my first surgery, the bilateral mastectomy after I think it was a 16 hour surgery and almost panicking. Cause I couldn't sit up on my own and I knew I couldn't have my regular practice, but just 
the intention of focusing on my breath, turning to my mantra, it just provided that home base when everything in my life had basically changed in that moment. So when you get up in the morning, first thing, first thing you do, don't, you don't check anything. You don't do anything. You don't talk to anybody. That's the first thing you do. Well, my teacher, David G, he likes to teach RPM, rise, pee, meditate. So you want to, and I'm a big believer. There is no one size fits all when it comes to practicing meditation. So I help people cultivate whatever, works what for works them. for them. Yeah. So if you can do it first thing in the morning, a, a meditation, I like to call it great. That's awesome. But we have kids, we have dogs, we have spouses, not always doable. So Um, Other good times are like midday between when you're starting kind of work or after you've dropped the kids off. Lunchtime is a surprising time for a lot of people. I work with a lot of people in the um, corporate environment. Um, So that's a popular time. Also the happy hour time. So that time where you want either a nap, a Diet Coke or a coffee. So I tell people meditate first and then if you still need those things. Uh But um, What, what are your thoughts on caffeine, by the way? I mean, everything in moderation. Um, I love my morning coffee occasionally. So when I was going through chemo, Diet Coke was like my treat. And, you know, I'm a big believer. Like my whole journey really was an integrative practice. So obviously did the Western medicine, but also did obviously the meditation. Visualization was really big for me. So can you tell us a little bit about the visualization? Sure. So. Um, a couple things I write just a couple days after my diagnosis, I send an email to my family. And again, people are like, wow, did you plan that? And it just came through. But I just kind of shared some guidelines that I thought would be helpful for me as I was going through this process. And one of the things was I wanted to treat this as a love journey. Now, it could have been because I was diagnosed on Valentine's Day. So it seemed an overt sign from the universe. Um, But it was important for me to not see this just as a battle to be fought and really encourage people to stay away from terms like fight, battle, or poison. Um, And again, not because I was naive to the reality and frankly, the brutality of what I knew about cancer, but I think I needed to meet that through a more compassionate lens. So one of the ways I did that, and it's in the book, but I had this very serendipitous meeting with um, a gentleman who ended up being my teacher and my mentor. He's a therapist, um, but also a Zen Buddhist priest. So it's kind of random how we connected. I basically had reached out to him three weeks before my diagnosis and his, um, you know, he's like, my first appointment's in three weeks. I'm like, I'll take it. So in our first meeting, he said, what brings you here? And initially I said, well, I was just going through some life change. I've since been diagnosed. He said, I'm going to stop you right there. I specialize in women with breast cancer and their psycho-spiritual journey. And I was like, okay. Wow. <laughs> so the he, right dude to bond with. He Holy helped cow. me to create custom visualizations um, where literally he would just kind of put it on my phone and talk me through it before every surgery. So really envisioning the surgical team happy, playing the playlist that I played for them, being happy with the results that they had done, um, visualizing myself healing with ease, taking the time to rest. Um, And then for the chemo, again, it was important for me not to just see it as poison that didn't feel especially productive. Again, you're aware because yeah. it says danger and <laughs> everyone's wearing masks and, um, you know, the gloves. But uh, so he helped me to really visualize it as a loving, friendly energy, part of my healing team coming into my body, doing what it needed to do and then leaving my system, which was really important for me. Um, and again, healing, you know, visualizing myself healing and getting stronger each day. And um, again, it is this is not for everyone, but this is say, what resonated for me. Yeah. And I, I think it's awesome. But I want you to speak to that because I'm just thinking as you're talking, there's got to be some people listening that are going, OK, come on. You know, with you, I guess it's like you're you know, you actually did it. So you have some street cred. But there are. Going to people that say, 
come on, like, you know, you envision them listening to your playlist. This is, this is BS. Most of you people thinking that way are East Coasters. I know you, <laughs> I was you. Um, but, but really it's, it's like there, there is, um, I think there's a cynicism about it. I think it's actually going away largely these days, or maybe that's just because I live in LA and yeah. we're, it seems to be more prevalent here. But uh, I love what you said about let's not like telling your family, let's not call it a battle or a fight, even though it is. You're exactly. not you're not like putting your head in the sand and, and saying this is going to be, as you said, rainbows and unicorns. But let's not use that language. Right. And that's a big thing that I've kind of um, especially in the recent years, just books I've read and people I've listened to talking about, you know, what is the specific language? And you choose that language. And how you choose to describe something is how you frame it in your mind and how you frame it in your mind is how you react to it and how you react to it is going to help you either win or lose. And, you know, so could you speak to us a little bit about how, you know, were you always that way growing up or did you have to consciously change the language in your head, the, the way you speak or the way you kind of walk around, what you think about, like, were you always that way or? or? Well, it really goes back to, so I grew up um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'm Jewish. And there were five Jewish people in my high school, two were my cousins. So, but I was always this curious soul seeker, even as a child. So like many people of our age, I got my spiritual guidance through Oprah. So I was that kid that came home every day rushing to see who she had on her show. And at the time, her spiritual programming was pretty sporadic. So, um, But she had all the pioneers, Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, Christiane Northrup. I mean, you name it, she had them and still features them. And one day, and it's one of these very vivid memories, she had a gentleman named Bernie Siegel, and he wrote a book called Love, Medicine, and Miracles. And it was about how he was an MD and how people can use visualization and meditation to help cope while going through cancer or heart disease. And so I was 13 years old when I was watching this. I had no idea what he was talking about, but something clicked. And I remember begging my mom, you know, can I need to buy that book? And so while most girls my age were reading, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I was reading Love, Medicine, and Miracles by Bernie Siegel. So there was something in me that was planted all along and throughout my life, like into my, in my twenties was a huge spiritual seeking time. So that's when I discovered Louise Hay and I was living in San Francisco at the time. And my friends and I would just explore every corner of this spiritual Mecca that we considered, um, San Francisco. And at the time I had started working with an acupuncturist who was quote, an intuitive acupuncturist, which I didn't at the time even know what that means. Um, now I think most healers are intuitive, but he really helped me understand energy and the chakras. And he is one of the first people that taught me about visualization. And so for me, my cancer diagnosis was less the crisis point and more a landing pad to really put all of these practices into play. So to answer your question, I do think it was in me. But I think it goes back to like my meditation practice, just having that sense of self and knowing what resonated for me. And for me, that's the most important thing in encouraging people to seek a practice for themselves. So you get to know that. So if using the battle metaphor is helpful for you, that's awesome. And there's tangible visualizations. You can see little soldiers like shooting the cancer cells. So it's really just being honest with what resonates for you. And then kind of going from there. And so, yeah, it really, it's kind of that, I think one of the biggest benefits of a personal practice is that personal discernment, which I really never understood until I think my cancer diagnosis and just, I've never been a, well, I I guess this is up for debate, but being a big decision maker, but that's one of the things I've noticed. I'm very clear, um, when I need to make decisions now. Because the stakes got higher. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And that inner voice just was like, all right, I'm calling the shots now. Yeah. 
Wow. I, I love talking to you. I mean, I hope that that and if you're listening right now, you're as inspired as I am because um it's it's a reminder the thing that we that all the things that we fear the most, say, oh my God, I hope this doesn't happen. When it happens, if you react to it in the right way, it ends up being, as it is for all the guests I have here, it ends up being your cause. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm thinking of a friend of mine who was on the show, Matt Long, and mm-hmm. he was he was a firefighter in New York and and uh, an Ironman triathlete, and he was run over by a bus. Mm. And he was basically, they, th- they said he's going to die. It is now his cause. You know, that is what he lives for. He helps other people. These things that are insurmountable become the very thing that guides your life. And, it, and it's... I'm also struck by the fact that you seemed so, you seemed like you were training for this. Yeah. From that's, such that's an the early language age. I use. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so wild. Yeah. It's like, um, it's kind of like if you saw it in a movie and you're like, oh, come on. Remember the scene when she was 13 and <laughs> right. she's watching Oprah and she sees the thing and the guy's talking. It's like, come on, that's a little on the nose. Like, yeah. So that prepared her and then she, yeah. but that's what happened. Yeah. I, I and those are it. the moments, those kind of, I call them universal winks um, that kept showing up. And I was there. I think they're always there for all of us happening all the time. It's just too. a matter if we are paying attention to them. And I think to your point of like, how are we reacting again? That for me, it's the meditation. It's you become more responsive versus reactive. And it, it's not spiritual it's scientific like there that's where all the research basically neuroscience is catching up to what ancient traditions have been saying forever but literally one of the key benefits regardless of the style of meditation is you're lowering and um, the gray matter in the amygdala which is responsible for fight or flight so that's what allows us to be more responsive in these high demand situations. Yeah. So so someone like myself who has been exposed to meditation, I feel like I kind of heard about it for a while, wasn't for me. I was that guy that said like, yeah, that's not going to happen. It just doesn't it just doesn't work. Um and yet in in a lot of acting classes for over two decades now, there has been in retrospect some type of meditation. And in the last few years, I've kind of given over to it. Headspace was great for me because it was just so accessible. And I was like, oh, I can do a three minute one. I can Mm -hmm. do a, you know, I could do a five minute one and kind of dip my toe in. And even with doing it and practicing it and seeing results, I have found that uh, I just got some some email that said, you know, we're renewing your one year thing. And I'm like, oh, I haven't really done it a yeah. lot lately. So I've fallen out of practice. It's more occasional. Mm-hmm. What do you say? I know there are people listening that are in my camp. They, they've tried it. They doubted it. They go, oh, it works. They did it. It worked. And they're still not really doing it the way you're doing it. What is your advice for us? So I was that person. Um, It took being on the verge of burnout that I knew something needed to change. But now I tell people it is really a case. So the only reason it became a daily practice for me is because I kind of backed into it. So I would be consistent. And on the days I would not do it, I would feel off. And I was like, oh, I didn't meditate today. So that's what basically got me on a consistent path. So I tell people it's about quantity over quality. So I'd much rather have you do five minutes every single day versus 20 minutes twice a week. Having said that, if you can only do 20 minutes twice a week, but the consistency is key. So that's kind of my recommendation. And I can't say it enough. It is okay to have thoughts. It's the nature of the brain to have thoughts. Meditation and mindfulness is really just a way of shifting our relationship to our thoughts so we get less like whiplashed by every thought we have. And ultimately, we do become the observer. So when we're meditating and we're having thoughts in meditation, it's really just stress that's leaving our body. So really understanding that distinction. Like even this morning, I did a longer meditation because I know I'm going to have a busier day. Um, And the timer went off and I was like, wait, I didn't meditate because I was so busy in my head. But you know what? 
My body was still. I didn't up and leave. It doesn't matter how we perceive our meditation. It's about giving our body the rest and relaxation so it can really, that's the only way our bodies recover from that lifetime of stress that we accumulate. So yeah. it's so funny that it applies. I love the way you're putting it and, it and it applies as you're speaking. I'm thinking of all the situations that applies to, I'm thinking of the gym, first of all, because mm-hmm. people go, well, how can you go? And, and I remember when my kids were young, we were living uh, down near the beach and there was a, a gym in the complex where we were. And, and I would go in, you know, it was like 20 to 30 minute workouts, but I did them five days a week, I'd say. And, and, and I went in, there was not a lot of rest. I went in, went out dripping with sweat. And I remember thinking, oh, that's kind of like, I mean, I, you know, I'd like to do more than that, but right now that's great. That's more than enough just to get in and out, get your heart rate up. And also just the message you're sending to your body. It was Mm -hmm. the consistency. And I'm thinking about it with writing. You know, you could see all this on the wall and writing into every writer says writers write. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you sit down for 10 minutes a day, you know, you want to sit down for more than that. But if that's the very least you got to, it's, it's just that consistency and the, and the chipping away and showing up when you don't want to be there, yeah. I guess, which is what and you're talking about. And it's being honest with your lifestyle. So for people that are like, honest, like cannot find five minutes, think of something you do every single day and just make it part of that. Brushing your teeth, taking a shower, brushing your teeth, just feeling the sensation, noticing your breath, feeling the smell of the toothpaste. If you're in the shower, using that as an opportunity to do a body scan, feeling the water pouring through the crown of your head, imagining it just melting and relaxing all of your muscles. So just start being consistent and intentional with that. And it it starts to show up. And the other thing for people that, especially with some of the professionals I work with, um, just that five minutes either before you go into work or before you go home at the end of the day, take that five minutes in your car, not when you're driving, and just focus on your breath. And it really is the ultimate kind of reset that can then put us in a more present state so we can be, you know, more connected in our relationships and what we're whatever we're facing. So yeah, that's um, the car meditation is like the unspoke. That is probably the most popular that most people do. Like once they discover, oh, I can just take five minutes in my car. That's all it takes. Then they've established the consistency and then they can start. The time starts to kind of show up magically. <laughs> just park around the corner from your exactly. Because if exactly. she works out, she's like, what are you doing in the exactly. car for five minutes while I'm here? With the yeah. Kid? And the uh, other thing is with kids, kids are super responsive and resilient and they love this stuff. So there are, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about finding that that space for yourself. But if you're with kids all day and you really can't take that time for yourself, get them on board. Um, so, and there's a, a tons of ways you can do that with kids. Yeah. I, um, I think sometimes the resistance for me is no, no, I got all this stuff to do. I got all this stuff to do. And if I'm going to stay, I'm gonna, I can't sit there for, for five minutes and just sit there and be mindful, you know, because I got to get this done. And it seems like the reality is that you're actually going to be way more productive if you say, hang on a second. I know there's a big list of things to do. There is always going to be a big list of things to do. Yeah. But I got to take care of myself first, get get centered and then hit it. Yeah. And that, and it's totally counterintuitive. Like you want me to stop in the midst of when everything's busy, but it's kind of that idea of multitasking. Like we think we're being more productive when we're multitasking, but the truth is we're, when we multitask, we reduce productivity by like 40%. And if you think about what's happening when we're multitasking, our nervous system is on fire. It's trying to manage all these different things. We're juggling all these things. So if we can take the pause and let our body be relaxed and align our body and our minds. It's so our body and minds are in different places all the time. So just by focusing on our breath, that kind of brings us into a relaxed state. And again, then we can be more responsive and productive with our time. So, but it is counterintuitive. So I get when people are like, 
you know, I can't do that. Um, but just try it. And, you know, even taking three deep breaths before a meeting or before a big conversation or whatever it is, um, just just try it and let yourself pay attention to how your body feels when you do that. Yeah, I forget who it is, or maybe it's several people who have said this. Um, I think it's people I know, maybe it's like a Tony Robbins or something. They're like, if you can't find five minutes to meditate, then you gotta you gotta reevaluate. Or yeah. five minutes to do anything that you're looking to do. Like you gotta reevaluate what your life is. You can't find five minutes, you know? Yeah. Um Deepak Chopra says if you can't find twenty minutes to meditate, then you need an hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. So so tell me what uh, you know, just logistically, how do you um how do you balance all of this. It sounds like you, you know, you're talking about not multitasking and yet you're an author. You mm-hmm. still have the blog? Um, yeah. I mean, okay. I still keep, so you're hello, Paige Davis you, is my new home. Hello, yeah. Paige Davis. Okay. Uh-huh. And we'll, we'll put that, um, in the, on the website, you know, on the, 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 in the show notes or the description of the episode for everybody to go to. Um, so you can, you can hear what Paige does, but you, so I'm just, curious for myself. You've written a book. Mm-hmm. You got the blog. Mm-hmm. You're an entrepreneur. You got blue avocado. You sounds like you're you're a little more removed from that mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um what else? You do you do meditation. Yeah, I teach meditation primarily for companies. So um and I do a lot of leadership training and corporate retreats and but I'll go into office and that's really my favorite thing to do. How do is- they receive you? Are they I mean, into it or so like, I think this? my background as an entrepreneur helps because that's really how I came to the practice. So you, I'm very clear when I go into a workplace that it's um, dispelling a lot of the myths. So, you know, that you're not going to be holding hands and just breathing with your coworkers and make it more about work specific topics. So stress release, um, focus, productivity, communication. So really approaching it more from the neuroscience perspective, but also bringing tangible ways that people can incorporate it. So I do a lot of mindful listening practices when I'm in the workplace, um, mindful walking, mindful eating. So just tangible ways that people can really start to experience it. Because at the end of the day, if you're not experiencing it, you're not going to be motivated to stick with it. So that's my goal in those environments. Yeah. So they, they're like, okay, she's one of us and she's done this and you can, you can, you have street cred. Yeah. And I, I welcome healthy skepticism. So, um, you know, ironically, like there've been several accounting firms and lawyers that I've worked with and you can just tell they come in kind of, they're forced to be there. Um, and it's ironically the people that are the most skeptical, they get it the most because they're not used to like, I'll always take people through a guided practice. So people, when they come out of that, they think they're just tired, but they're really just relaxed and they're not used to feeling that in their bodies. So people are like, what is happening? Like, what did you do? And I was like, I didn't do anything like you just took a pause and you focused on your breath and this is what it can do for you. Huh. Oh, I have a question. Mindful eating. I yes. have been known, anybody listening who knows me knows that I, I am known for my eating and my large portions. And yes. there's there's a uh, there's something in it where it's almost an identity. I was like that when I was younger. I was always eating, trying to get bigger for sports and yeah. it's kind of carried over. I'm a little less of a moron these days than I used to be. But I can still eat a lot. And I think hearing you talk about mindful eating, um, I think what happens to me sometimes is I just get ahead of myself. Yeah. And it's like this this old program of if you give me a plate of food, I am going to clean that plate. Right. I don't know if it's because, you know, grandparents mm-hmm. went through the depression and yeah, all that, yeah. but that is ingrained in me. Yeah. And I'm going to eat. And I'm not only going to clear that plate, I'm going to get another plate. I'm going to clear that one too. Mm-hmm. What is your, how do you coach people with that so that they are not just like scarfing down their food the way I sometimes do? And they're actually, uh, what what do you- Let me be transparent. I'm not the best mindful eater. So this is not where I, 
but it's a practice. So instead of saying, eat your meal mindfully, I like to take people through an actual practice. So an example would be taking some fruit. So give people a blueberry, um, take a moment to look at the blueberry, imagining what it took to have that blueberry at your plate, all the different points it touched from being in the earth to the farmer that picked it to the truck that brought it to you, feeling the texture Um, biting into it. A lot of people are surprised that the inside of a blueberry is white and not blue. So, and then noticing the texture and feeling it in your mouth, chewing more than you think you can chew, and then slowly swallowing and then imagining it digesting in your system. So are you going to do this every meal? No, but it's a practice. And again, as you're doing that, not only are you slowing down, but you're also, you really are creating new neural pathways in your brain. So if you can think of just maybe I'm going to try that and that's a great thing to do with the kids. Like for five minutes, we're going to eat this one blueberry yeah. um, and see who can do it the slowest in, in silence. And it's really powerful and people are always amazed in the I, revelation. I, I love that. I'm, I'm thinking it's a great, uh, it's actually a great tool for writers too, mm-hmm. to think like, where did this blueberry come from? And where, you know, I mean, that could be a whole Pixar movie right there. Yeah. And that's <laughs> the where- go from where it was to your mouth. I and mean, that's where there's so many def- different techniques when it comes to practicing meditation and mindfulness. So, you know, the first part of that is a gratitude practice, like giving thanks for everything it took to bring that blueberry um, the actual eating it is engaging your senses. So again, if people are like overwhelmed by meditation, just know that there's so many different entry points. So what may work for you may not work for someone else. So, um, you know, I will say that the breath is probably the the gateway um, to getting started, but even that for people. So simply observing your breath without even doing anything is powerful. Um, there's also techniques of counting breaths or, you know, suspending the inhale or the exhale. But for some people, that's awesome. For some people, it makes them feel more anxious. So it's right. your job to be really honest with that doesn't resonate for me. Great. That doesn't go in your toolkit. Maybe you try a body scan and that can be really powerful for people. So I'm laughing when you're saying <laughs> that that makes people anxious. That's like the thing with me with Headspace was I was getting into it and then they had this thing where it'd be like, three days in a row, you know, if you do it, it gives you, and then they're like, you know, you get up to like 27 days in a row. And then I'm like, oh shit, I did 27 days. I can't miss 28. You know, I'm going to go back to zero again. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, I don't think I should be keeping score on, you know, it's, I get the point of it, but also then my mind went to this. And that's perfect to know about yourself. And there's these awesome technologies like the Muse technology, which charts your brain waves and you listen to like the birds chirping, which for some people that are kind of very outcome-based, it's awesome. But for me, I'm fascinated by what's happening to my brain waves, but it's like too much information. Like yeah. I just need to be in my body and focus on my breath. And mantra is kind of my go-to practice. But um, Tell again, us a little bit about mantra because I think some people, um, sometimes myself included, will we'll go, okay, yeah, I'm going to say a mantra. This is BS. Why am I, you know, the mantra, everything is good. Everything is good. What, how does that work and how do you deal with it and how yeah. do you kind of approach so it? So mantra is a technique that it, it literally just means a tool to train the brain. So it's a simple repetition of a word or phrase. So really anything can be a mantra. Um, So I like to use the word Hawaii as an example. Let's say I'm saying Hawaii and just silently repeating it over and over. Now, most likely I'm thinking of the beach, maybe my feet in the sand. Can I interject and say, are you kidding me right now? I know you're going to Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) She is going to Hawaii after this interview. I am. Okay, sorry, go on. So Hawaii beach. But if I... Take Hawaii into syllables. Hawaii. 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 I've stripped away the story of it and I'm focusing more on the sound vibration. So when you hear about mantra based practices, it's usually usually Sanskrit based on the sound vibration. Now there's different schools of thought. Um, TM is one. I can't speak specifically to that, but I've done primordial sound, um, Vedic meditation. And it really is just 
a different technique. And as you're repeating the mantra, you're literally creating new neural pathways in the brain that allow it to become and stay relaxed. So again, when you're in those high demand situations, you're able to be more responsive. So you can go to and receive, if you go to um, one of these trainings, Primordial Sound Vedic, you get a personalized mantra, which is great. But for some people, that's like, well, I don't want to invest the money. There are kind of generic mantras that you can use. So hum-sa is a popular one. So just silently repeating hum on the inhale, sa on the exhale. As you continue to do that, you may notice that um, the mantra wants to stay coordinated with the breath. It might want to go faster or slower. So again, it's just a tool to keep bringing you back when, when you find yourself drifting away. So when you've drifted you gently and without judgment come back to repeating the mantra. Um, and so you're not doing like a sentence like... Uh, so like a, technically, other, I consider that more like intentions or affirmations, but 100% people, so all as well, all as well, all as well. You can absolutely do that. Again, that's going to be a case where you might be trying to like fix through or work something out. So I use affirmations more in my waking state. So if I'm about to go into something and I'm nervous, I'll, I'll continue to repeat that. But in the practice, again, if we can think of our meditation practice as an allotted time where it's really just exercise for the brain, I would just encourage people to try more of a generic kind of Sanskrit mantra. So you're not getting you're not caught up in this logic. story. Yeah, that's exactly. sometimes what happens. I'm like, my, my brain, I need to almost turn it off and um, yeah. and get more into my body or my logical side yeah. just kind of runs away with the show. Yeah. Um, so you're saying you don't do... You don't do like a guided meditation, like what I'm talking about with headspace or what some people you're, you're actually, you're, it's just you in the silence for now, but I didn't start that way. Okay. I did, um, guided meditation. I started with the Oprah 21 day, of course, meditation challenge. So she has one with, um, Deepak and that really is what got me interested. And, um, so they do all primordial sound meditation. So Sanskrit mantras, oh, okay. um, but yeah, for people starting out, absolutely start guided. Do not try to just go in on your own unless you're feeling called to do that. Like how that's long where did people, you do it guided? Uh, years? I mean, for years I was kind of dabbling and would do the 21 day whenever it came up. But again, it was just that nine months before I hit my, I just knew something needed to change. Um, and again, it, it was beyond me. This was, it did not make sense logically, financially. We were about to have a huge product launch. But I literally signed up on the spot. And of course, everything worked out. The product launch got pushed back because of there were some development issues. So um, yeah, it was that was kind of my first, like, I like to call it like my inner voice, self, whatever it is, being like, I got your back. Like, let's yeah. just do this. Just trust me and let's go. Yeah. Well, and one thing I was thinking, and I won't keep you too much longer because we're, you know, we're getting to that time. We can start to wind it down. But um, I was thinking of, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs say don't, uh, you, you don't want to be a, a business, you want to be a business owner, not a business operator. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of how, in a way, maybe the universe had your back. You had this company that you, Blue Avocado, that you're, you're very much like all over it, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you get this diagnosis and it actually forced you into a role of, maybe having to delegate more, maybe having to let go more and let other people run things. And you're still, you still have ownership, yep. I think, right? That is interesting to me. Yeah. That you were forced into that role of maybe being a big thinker as opposed to like a, a daily grinder there. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but um, for those that people that are kind of have an understanding of masculine and feminine energy. So masculine is very driven, like go, go, go. Um, it, it's not related to male or female. We all have masculine and feminine energy. So I think before the diagnosis, I was just so just driven in, in my masculine energy. I, in the feminine energy is more intuitive, receiving, open, creative. And again, we all have those regardless of our gender. Um, I, I think that the diagnosis literally was a 180 kind of just turn. 
And I think I was so starved for that feminine energy that I (laughs) totally went to the opposite extreme in a good way. And, you know, I, I really was not that person that would ask people for help or be open to receiving that. And I just let it all come in. And and it really is one of the greatest lessons. And that continues, you know, post the book and this, like, this really is kind of a new way of living my life. And um, I'm so grateful for that. And you're, is it complete remission? Do you still, uh, do you still keep? Remission's one of those words that, and I talk about this in the book, that it wasn't relevant to my type of cancer. They like to say free from evidence of disease. Um, So yeah, it's a, I'm good technically in the clear, but this is something that if anyone's been through cancer, has a, a loved one, um, it's never really done. So for me, the most shocking part of this was what we call the survivorship period. So it's that period following treatment. And you're kind of like, where'd everyone go? Because without the daily focus of the treatments, you finally have the space to start emotionally processing kind of what you've been through. And that was and continues to be a very challenging time for me. And I know for a lot of other survivors, I like to call us thrivers. Um, But yeah, so, you know, you still have... I'm at every six months now, a How doctor's long ago appointment. How that you were through? Uh, so the, the surgeries and everything. Um, it's been about three and a half years probably. Um, but And you're yeah. still dealing with those feelings. Yeah. Right? And yeah. And, and probably and, will continue to. And you know, way. one of the biggest things that I hope this book kind of highlights is this issue of survivor's guilt. And, you know, I was very fortunate to have a treatable type of cancer, but I know that's not the case. And specifically in my own family, it's come up a lot. And you hear every day of people that are newly diagnosed who have passed away. And, um, you know, it's not lost on me that everyone, not everyone has a book launch after their journey. And that's something um, that is both heartbreaking, but also heart opening. And um, so it's, it continues to, all the feelings are still there, but I feel so grateful that I have the tools and the um, kind of sense of self to really kind of work my way through in a meaningful way. So awesome. I, I, I want you to write another book so you can come back on and we can talk some more because Perfect. you're so easy to talk to oh, and, thank you. and you're so uh, accessible. I, I, I love the combination of you have a very specific thought of how you operate, but you don't have any judgment of how anybody else should go about it. And it feels very personalized and, and very, you you're very aware that different people respond differently. I love it. Um, where can people find Here We Grow? So it's on Amazon and really at any bookstore, if they don't have it, you can ask them to order it. But um, Here We Grow, Mindfulness Through Cancer and Beyond. And um, also on my website, hello, Paige Davis, page with an I. Okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll put all of that information there for you guys listening who want to contact Paige and, uh, Thank you so much for thank being you. so open and so honest and, and you're a joy to talk oh, to. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Thank you guys again for joining. I hope you liked that conversation as much as I did. I really loved Paige. Uh, had not met her before. Um, there are so many takeaways as there always are. And, and so it makes it hard for me to choose. But I'm going to go with what she said about daily practice and lack of judgment on yourself for doing it wrong and on others for getting there any way that works for them. It's, it's different for all of us. And that's, that's what I loved about Paige was she has her way of doing it. And yet she says, look, do do whatever works for you. That's all. We're just trying to, trying to enlighten ourselves or, or, you know, be at one with ourselves, however you want to, uh, to describe it. That's the goal. doesn't matter how you get there. Also, listening to those universal winks. I've, I've felt them in my life too. It's almost as if you look at your life like it's a movie or a book. So when things happen to you that seem just like a convenient coincidence or, or, you know, something poetic, you don't just shrug them off and go grab a drink. You go, huh, that's bizarre that I just saw that person right now and had this conversation about, you know, whatever, fill in the blank for whatever's going on with you right now. At this particular moment, what does that mean? You know, that that's what you can do with this. How many times has something weird like that happened and you've just ignored it and 
if you're aware of this, this idea of universal winks, can you in the future, something like that happens and you go, huh, maybe I should try this or pivot this way or whatever. Um, I think if you, if you give it meaning, it becomes meaningful, which is what Paige did when she was young and she heard Oprah or saw her on TV and, and, and she kind of, it, it veered the course of her life. And then she did it again and again. And now we look back and we go, it looks like you were training for what you eventually went through. And it, it's just all in how we choose to view it. Uh, I felt really inspired by what she had to say. Um, you know, going back to the podcast, if you're not subscribed, please do so. iTunes, Spotify, you can listen at 10,000knows.com. There will be, we're going to start doing show notes so you can get uh, timestamps of when people are talking about different topics, makes it easier for you to navigate. Um, you can email questions or suggestions. There's a contact button um, at 10,000knows.com. You can also email info at 10,000knows.com. If you like what you heard, Please spread the word. You know, iTunes reviews really help us out. Um, you can post it on social media. Tell your friends and family about it. Just the, the main thing I'm trying to do here is entertain you. Yeah, you know, so you get to hear cool people and conversations. And then also encourage you to keep going, you know, to follow your dreams, even if it's one step a day. And if you, if maybe it's not you, maybe it's someone you know, your cousin, your sister, your brother, your mom and dad, whoever it might be that you think could hear something like this and be inspired to go on, please share it with them. That's, that's the point. And, um, you know, we all get knocked down. Every single one of us doesn't mean we have to get knocked out. So we will see you next Friday when the next episode drops. Thanks again for listening. Thanks.